Hi everyone, welcome to another episode in the ongoing series here on Svarim Chatter and Spanish Jewry Through the Ages. On uh, this episode of the series, we'll be focused on poetry. So piut and poetry and the figures, various um, paitanim in Muslim Spain predominantly. And also a little bit about the intersection between Muslim and Jewish culture and that kind of spills over into uh, so we'll kind of be going through the various figures as well as selections of the poetry you'll hear, kind of English and Hebrew uh, translation. Professor Brand kind of tried to give over, so I hope you enjoy that. And you'll be learning a lot about Piet and, and the Paitanim and their background. So it's kind of more figure focus and literature focus. And the first two are kind of general broad overview. And this is going to be, I guess, a broad overview in some regards, but not really. It's specific on various figures and a specific topic. So enjoy. Uh, I once again would like to thank and mention the sponsor of the series, Clock Plumbing. Um, for all your service needs, big or small in New Jersey, with a full service division, from boiler changeouts, main sewer line snakeouts, camera ing main lines, to a simple faucet leak, Glock Plumbing Service Division has you covered. Give them a call, 732-523-1836, extension 1. Again, 732-523-1836, extension 1. And of course, mention that you heard them on the uh, Farm Chatter podcast and thanking them. Thank them for sponsoring this series and the previous series, Shop Safe and hopefully future uh, series. Um, and as always, if anyone would like to sponsor an episode, email me, nachi at farmchatter.com, as well as questions, comments, feedback. I've gotten a number of emails, feedback. Hopefully I responded to you. If it didn't, bear with me. I will try to on the Spain series and on other episodes, but, you know, just Spain series specifically, things that people want to hear, didn't like hearing about, things, because, you know, can be done differently, et cetera. Um, so let me know. And you know, thank you to everyone that subscribed, rate, and review the podcast. And if you haven't, if you please can, and enjoy this episode of the series. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Svarim Chatter podcast. On this episode of the podcast, I'm going to be joined by Professor Ross Brand, who is the Milton R. Convis Professor of Judeo-Islamic Studies at Cornell University. He's the author of a number of books, his newest book being Iberian Moorings, Al-Andalus and Sfarad and the Tropes of Exceptionalism, published by University of Pennsylvania Press, and like I said, a number of other books as well. And this episode, we're going to be discussing generally uh, Spanish Jewry, especially as it pertains to uh, Muslim Spain in the Middle Ages and their the great figures and their literary works and um, examples from that, their poetry and philosophy and Sfarim and other things that they wrote. So... Thank you, Professor Brand, for joining me. Thanks so much. It's really a pleasure. So let's start off. Tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and your background. Uh, I'm from San Francisco. Uh, from uh, I guess I'm second generation Jewish American. Uh, and um, I studied at the University of California, Berkeley. I uh, participated in the second year of the study abroad programs at the Hebrew University in 1969-70. It really wasn't until after the 67 war that all of the various programs in Israel opened up to cater to an interest uh, American Jews across the board in, uh, you know, in Judaica, in the history of, of, of modern Jewry and so on. And it was really at as an undergraduate, and then especially during that year in Israel, that I became that I immersed myself in Judaica, but from an academic point of view, 
Um, not, you know, I did not study at yeshiva, but I studied Hebrew extensively, fell deeply in love with the Hebrew language and its richness. And that kind of led me to where I ended up in graduate school, couldn't even imagine the idea of stopping study after being an undergraduate. I had a brief uh, year at the Jewish Theological Seminary in America, where I studied Talmud with uh, David Gordas um, and some other things. That was the closest I came to somewhat of a more traditional Jewish education, and then did my PhD at New York University. Um, and at a time when, although we did end up in, in finding expertise in particular areas of Judaica, we also really received a very, very broad training that I think I benefited from really for my entire academic life. Um, really from, you know, like we say, people used to say from um, the Tanakh to Bialik or something like that. I mean, we really studied almost everything. So how did you get interested in particularly in this, this period that we're discussing, Spanish Jewry in, under Muslim Spain? Right. So Hebrew intensive study of Hebrew uh, led me to uh, comparative interests and the study of Arabic language. And from the study of Arabic language and how important Arabic was in the evolution of Jewish culture in the Middle Ages, um, uh, there was no reason or rationale not to study Islamica in addition to Arabica. And um, during the period that I concentrate on, really from, let's say, 800 to 1300, um, um, this was a period in which if you study the history and culture of the Jews in Mediterranean lands, you can't really separate cultural developments from Arabic and Islamic studies. And so that I ended up uh, getting training in both. And in one way or another, that's what I've been working on ever since. And um, it's deeply enriched my, my Jewish experience, frankly. Okay, so let's talk about the Jews you said from 800 to 1300. Uh, uh, just a brief overview of the Jews in, in Spain, and then especially as it goes pertains to what we'll be discussing in Muslim Spain, and, and I guess also kind of what Muslim Spain means. People are familiar, I guess, with Spain as a country today, but that's not exactly what was going on back then. Exactly. So uh, in Hebrew, we use the word Sfarad, which uh, refers to the entire Iberian Peninsula, regardless of who is managing it politically. Um, the Jews have a long history in Sfarad that goes back probably to the time of the Second Temple. Um, perhaps you'll pursue that in, on a different podcast. Um, so Jews lived in Sfarad long before, centuries before uh, Islam and the Muslims arrived. Um, and um, my period, uh, the heart of my period, let's say from 950 to 1200, just to give a neat cutoff, is very often referred to uh, in the Jewish world as the golden age of the Jews in Spain or the golden age of Jewish culture in Spain, in Hebrew, Torah Zahav. 
we can't talk about that because it didn't begin there. Uh, we can't talk about that without first talking about developments in Babel, in Babylonia, in Iraq, as it would have been called at the time and still is today, and the figure of Sa'ad Yiga'on, who I think would be known in some way to most of the people listening to the podcast. Sadia was born in 882 in Egypt, uh, spent some time in uh, Palestine studying before moving on to Baghdad, where his genius as a scholar of halakha was recognized, and he became uh, Rosh Yeshiva of one of the yeshivot in Baghdad. They had moved from Sora and Pombadita to Baghdad, sort of in the early in the Muslim period, when Jews really underwent a transformation from being a people living on the land in the countryside uh, that's reflected in the Babylonian Talmud, in the Bavli, uh, to a people really living in cities. This is really important for us today because we think today of the Jews as primarily an urban people, their exceptions, but primarily in urban people, that did not happen until the ninth century in the Islamic East. And Sadia's career is a reflection of that. His interests are a reflection of that. His, um, his life is a reflection of that. This is a period when historically uh, we can say the encounter between Judaism and the Jews and Muslims and Islam was enriched Judaism and Jewish life. Uh, we need to separate that observation and its implications out from anyone's views about anything that happened later on. It's a historical reality uh, that a lot of Jews aren't entirely in touch with. The Judaism that we uh, observe today and that we, you know, that, that, that we embrace today is in part, even the Ashkenazi uh, inflection of Judaism is a result of the transformations of Jewish tradition that began in, 19, in 9th century Baghdad. Um, urbanization of the Jewish people I already mentioned. Uh, economic freedom that the Jews enjoyed under Islam, even as they were second-class citizens to Muslims the centralization of Jewish authority, the establishment of these yeshivot whose influence went far beyond the local realm where the Ge'onim in Baghdad were engaged in correspondence with Chuvot and so on with Jewish communities far beyond uh, Babylonia and received uh, support, monetary support from the entire Jewish Mediterranean for the upkeep of the yeshiva, for the study of scholars, and for the training of young scholars. So if you were a Jew living in North Africa and you were a local uh, rabbinic scholar, maybe more on the kin to Mara Atra, not exactly uh, a type of a gaon, and you recognized some young guy who just had a brilliant head for Talmudic study, what do you do? You send him to Baghdad. And so there was this nexus of interconnection between the Jewish communities all over the Mediterranean. This was true with the Yeshivot in Palestine too, but more so with, with the, the Bavel Center. 
And so that's the context in which not only did this did the transformation of Jewish culture under Sadie going to happen there, but it had repercussions that went all the way across uh, Eretz Yisrael and south to Yemen and across North Africa and into Spain. What am I talking about specifically? Quickly, for the first time ever, Jews began the systematic study of biblical Hebrew grammar. No one had ever done it before. Why did Jews do it? Because Arabs were doing it with the Arabic of the Quran. The encounter with what Muslims were doing with their divine revelation, as they understood it, inspired Jews to begin to look at our Tanakh in a different way, not to remove it from the sphere of the basis for all of Allaha, but to look at it more broadly. Also, Hebrew lexicography, the study of Hebrew words in the Hebrew Bible, biblical exegesis and commentary. Sadia wrote a translation of the Torah into Arabic and some other books, but also a commentary, which he called tafsir. He wasn't absolutely the first uh, in all of these areas, but he was the first most important one to do it. There were a few others. Uh, in Halakha, no one before the Geonim had written a halachic monograph devoted to a discrete area of halachic study. Uh, no one had ever written a halakhic digest. No one had ever written a halakhic code. Jews, educated Jews, the Go'anim in Iraq and in Palestine, did for Jewish law, for halakha, exactly what the Muslims were doing for their sharia. They did exactly the same thing. Response to literature is new. Standardization of the sidur. Sadia produced, you know, the earliest standardized sidurim, the idea that, well, out there in the Jewish world, people are using a different sidur for Chagim and Shabbat. This rankled, this idea of it all, it's all got to be one thing. First time Jews under Sadia ever wrote systematic theology. The Tanakh, the, the Talmud, the Midrashim are, of course, full of theology. They talk about God or God speaks all the time, but no one had ever said, what does that, what, what is God? What is God's relationship to the created universe? What is God's relationship to the Jewish people? What is God's relationship to the individual soul? Jews became interested in these questions. Why? Because Muslims were interested in these questions. Um, finally, interest in poetry and poetics and we'll talk more about that in a little bit. Okay, so uh, fascinating, as you were uh, saying. So, and then uh, also the Siddur of Amram going, right, which is still around today, of his uh, Siddur that he sent around. So that's yeah. another one. Yeah, exactly. so now we get to Spain. So uh, first of all, Muslim Spain, let's just try to explain ge geographically, where are we talking about? Like you said, it's the whole peninsula, but what are we talking about when we mentioned this period and these figures that we'll mainly be discussing? Spain at this time, there is no unif there's no unified Spain. So mainly where are we right. discussing? And it's not called Spain. So the Jews called the whole peninsula Svarad, and the Muslims called the whole peninsula Al-Andalus, from whence uh, the modern Spanish southern provinces, Andalusia in modern Spain, that's where that came from, from the Arabic word. 
Um, the origins of that are complicated. We don't need to go into that. Um, but um, for for at least 200 years, really a little bit more, maybe almost 300, Muslims and Islam controlled the, almost the entirety of the peninsula with only the northernmost part of Iberia under Christian control. Subsequently, in something that history calls the Reconquista or Spanish history calls the Reconquista, the line, the border between Christian Spain and Islamic Spain begins moving south. And the key date in that um, period is the Christian conquest of Toledo in 1085. Toledo is virtually dead center in the middle of the peninsula. Jews continue to live in both parts of Svarad, Christian, the Christian part of Svarad, the Islamic part of Svarad for centuries. Okay, so now we get to the, like we're talking about this area. So what is it that, there, we will, as we'll discuss, there was this, you know, literary output, this great output that's going to be in these great figures, uh, but writing, interested in all these different things, like we were mentioning already, uh, not only in Iraq, they'll be interested in you know, I'll continue to call it Spain, even though it's not Spain, like you said, um, just for it easier. Yeah, make it easier for everyone. So what is it that causes it? Is it like you're saying, the what is the Muslim context in Spain at the time, in this area that causes and that the these Jews, these people that we'll talk about, they get from them? So during this period, not just in Spain, but in North Africa and in Iraq, Jews did not live in ghettos. They did live in, they were a minority maybe in the biggest cities, at most 5% of the population. We've always been a very small people. Um, and uh, But they interacted economically and to a certain extent socially with their Muslim and Christian neighbors. And um, when people come into contact with one another, uh, they learn from one another. And... Uh, just to make this absolutely clear, this process of, let's call it cultural assimilation, not what we mean by assimilation today in the United States, all of the figures and all of the communities I'm talking about were 100% halachic Jews. These were people who lived by halacha. Rabbinic halacha, except for a small Jewish minority called Karaites. We could talk about them another time. Uh, it's not the focal point. There were uh, Karaim were biblical oriented Jews that rejected, that rejected rabbinic authority, but I'm not going to talk about them other than to say I have to correct myself when I say all Jews followed rabbinic halacha. There was this other much smaller minority body that did not. Uh, but even they interacted with rabbinite Jews. Um, so the Jews during this period in Iraq, in North Africa, and culminating in Spain, were found a way to feel completely comfortable as Jews, observant rabbinic Jews, while um, engaging the larger cultural environment, not you know, in ways that would uh, violate rabbinic tradition or detract from Judaism, they viewed it on the contrary as a way of enriching Judaism or 
um, as we were talking about before we went on air, they often said what they were actually doing was recovering what was already present in biblical Israel or in then in the cultural world of the Chachamim. Um, and so for them, this was not in any way uh, a distortion of Judaism or Jewish experience. It enriched it and it enabled them to have the resources to live and prosper in the world that they inhabited, which was a very different world than the world of biblical Israel or even the world of the Chachabim. A big part of that is poetry, as you already mentioned. So before we get to the figures and their works, I want to talk a little bit about the poetry, because poetry meaning literally poetry, as well as slichos, kinos, and, and all these kind of poetic things. This is something. So so first of all, what what type of Hebrew poetry we're we talking about, and how does this compare their poetry to the Arabic poetic tradition, the Arabic poetry going on then, and, and also as well to prior Hebrew poetry or somewhat lack thereof? Right. So there actually was a lot of Hebrew poetry. You mentioned some of the genres. Together, we can call all of them piyut. So before this period, we have scores of piyutim uh, on, you know, all manner of religious subjects of to educate the Jewish communities, to uh, inform Jewish communities who were not so well educated about midrashic lore on... Um, uh, Piyutim connected to the cycle of Torah readings uh, for uh, Shabbos and holidays, the whole gamut. So you have a long history, hundreds of years of the history of Piyut. The poets of Spain know all of that. They're aficionados of that. But they want to take Hebrew literature in a slightly different direction. First of all, uh, the PU team of Byzantine Palestine, uh, up until the period of Sadiqa on, written in a really, really difficult Hebrew and a very invented Hebrew. The Jewish poets of Sfarad were following Sadiqa on, believed in biblical purism, that the Hebrew, the Tatanach was the best example of pure Hebrew. Hebrew before Aramaic and other kinds of things entered into it, and Hebrew as it was lived when the Jews lived in their own land. Now, for some, this even included rabbinic Hebrew or Mishnaic Hebrew. So, for instance, the Rambam, who comes at the end of this period and who wasn't a poet, wrote a few Hebrew poems and some very beautiful rhymed prose introductions to some of his works, but wasn't a poet, but Rambam sort of showed the, the end parameters. He also believed that because Mishnaic Hebrew was written on the soil of Eretz Yisrael, it was reflective of he, Hebrew as a living reality, even in its literary forms. And so Sa'adia was adamant about uh, what he called tzachot. This is a word it appears it's a hapex legomenon, appears once in the Tanakh in Isaiah, that was taken to mean biblical Hebrews purity, clarity, conciseness, beauty. And it's a lone translation of an Arabic word for the beauty 
uh, and wondrous nature of the Arabic language. So here is a way of importing something that Sa'adya sees as in the Bible and that he notices in the beauty of the Hebrew language, especially in poetry, especially say in Tehillim. Not exclusively there, but especially when you get to poetry. And poetry is the most important art form for the Arabs and Muslims, whether they're writing in Persian or in Arabic. So the Jews inherit that world of this kind of, of poetry being really important, the idea of biblical purism, classicism, the existence, uh, the pre-existence of piyut in a different kind of language. And because of the external inspiration, they want to write Hebrew poetry, religious and non-religious. Non-religious is obviously new, and I'll get to that in a minute, but even their religious poetry is new because uh, they wrote it in a very different register of Hebrew, trying to use biblical Hebrew primarily in a somewhat more accessible language to uh, most Jews. And they even developed that, their own kind of piyut. So the first exemplar of this is someone all of this audience knows, even if they don't know him. The man who wrote Drori Kra, which is one of the Zmirot we sing on Friday night, is a guy by the name of Dunash Ben Labrat, the first, as far as we know, Hebrew poet of Islamic Spain or Muslim Spain or Sfarad during that period. Dunash, according to his name, was probably born in Morocco, went to Baghdad, studied with um, Sa'ad Yiga'on, imbibed Sadiga'on's views about language and Jewish culture and Hebrew poetry brought them to Spain, where he found an audience in uh, with a very important Spanish Jewish man by the name of Chastai Ibn Shaprut, that some people just might know if they have a basic um, grasp on medieval Jewish history. Ibn Shaprut worked for the Muslim king in Cordoba during this golden age. And he uh, had correspondence with Jews around the world. He sent money and correspondence to the Ga'onim in Baghdad. They were very interested in what they heard uh, about what was going on in Sfarad. Uh, both the Ga'onim in Eretz Israel and Babylonia both wanted their money and got some of it. The primary attachment was to Babel, but you know, it was complicated. The Jewish world was complicated even then. And there were these rivalries, of course. Um, Hasdai uh, became wealthy through uh, his contacts and his operations. He worked for the Muslim king. He was a physician and a scientist and a diplomat. And what his ambition was, was to model on a really small scale what he saw Muslim leaders doing, which is you support scholarship, you bring in poets, you bring in Talmudic scholars, you bring in scholars of Hebrew language, you pay them stipends to do their work. They don't have to do anything else. They just, if they're poets, they have to write nice poems praising you. They have to write poems if somebody gets married in your family or somebody dies, then they have to write a kinah. Uh, and he tried to recreate on a tiny Jewish scale 
what was happening for the Muslims in Cordoba at the court of the head of the Muslims, the caliph. He succeeded and he drew to Spain and to Cordoba other Jews like Dunash ben Labrat, uh, all of whom competed for resources and connections and so on. And it set off this period, which we call Torah Zahav, the golden age, uh, which began sort of slowly and was predicated on that stuff in Baghdad, but then took off really, really quickly. Um, so I want to, Dunash, I mentioned Rory Kra, which I know everybody knows, but I want to give you a little epigram, which shows his other side. And together, the two, both, both his PU team, Dory Kra is not the only one. He signed it, by the way. It's an acrostic. So Dunash is, is why it begins with a Dalit. Um, so he has a little epigram that was also discovered, and it goes like this in Hebrew. Vegan ednach Yehusi Frey Kedoshim, Ufar Desach Yehusi Frey Aravim. Let your Eden be the sacred scriptures, your paradise the Arabs' books. Now, what's wonderful about this? Um, it shows that he's living in two worlds at the same time. The, the poetry is almost like a perfect parallel that. You do A because that's your inheritance. Uh, and Sifre Kedoshim probably doesn't just include Tanakh. It probably includes all of Jewish tradition. Uh, and uh, But uh, in the world that they're living in, there's also Arabic literature. And I, I didn't mention, but I really have to, all of the Jews I'm talking about spoke Arabic as their mother tongue. So they're fully Arabized. They're Arabized while still remaining Jews. They are, today we would call them either Arab Jews or Jewish Arabs. Um, their, their linguistic and cultural identity lives in perfect harmony with their religious commitment. There's no problem there. Um, and Dunash captured that in this little epigram. After Dunash, we have a bunch of other poets um, some really good. Um, some of these characters are writing principally religious PU team. Others, a little bit of both. They're dabbling in both. This breaks out in a totally new way with the appearance of Shmuel Hanagid, who was born in 993 and died in 1056. He's from a Cordovan family that fled to Malaga in the wake of some civil disturbances that did not involve the Jews, although Jews were affected by it. Um, he eventually moves to Granada with his family and there becomes one of the most important Jews of the entire period uh, in multiple, multiple ways. Um, some listeners may know, even if they haven't looked at it, I don't think it's been translated into Hebrew. Um, it's in Judeo-Arabic. It's Hilchata Gavrata. It's a halakhic uh, treatise that the Nagid wrote. He was a halakhic scholar. Uh, he, he studied at the, at the yeshiva of uh, Rabbi Hanoch. Um, he was a Hebrew grammarian who wrote on Hebrew grammar. 
Uh, and he was uh, most famously the first of the greatest Hebrew poets of Svarat during this period. Additionally, he embodies this other aspect that was already there in, you know, through the figure of Chastai Ibn Shaprud, who wasn't a poet, wasn't a halachic scholar, as far as we know. Um, the Nagid combined all of these things. He also, by virtue of his Arabic, became the prime minister of the Muslim state of Granada. Um, I can refer people to how they can find out more about this, but he was the, the second in command of the Islamic country for decades because he was trusted by the Muslim king, uh, partly because he was a Jew, because the Jews were a tiny part of the population. They couldn't overthrow the king. Um, and because he was savvy. And I want to, before we look at a couple of his poems, just want to read you something really quickly from uh, Abraham ibn Daoud, Sefer Kabbalah, the book of tradition. This is how Samuel the Nagib was remembered by the Jews of Sfarad. One of uh, Rabbi Hanoch's outstanding disciples was Rabbi Samuel Halevi the Nagib ben Rabbi Yosef, surname ibn Nagrila of the community of Cordoba. Besides being a great scholar and a highly cultured person, Rabbi Samuel was highly versed in Arabic literature and style and was indeed competent to serve in the king's palace. Nevertheless, he maintained himself in very modest circumstances as a spice merchant until the time when war broke out in Spain. Then Ibn Daoud goes on to describe how the Nagid's talents are discovered and he's summoned to Granada to serve in this capacity. Um, and then um, I want to read one more thing about this. Um, now, Rabbi Samuel was appointed Nagid in 4787. He achieved great good for Israel in Spain, the Maghreb, Morocco, Ifriqiya, Tunisia, Egypt, Sicily, indeed, as far as the academy in Babylonia and the Holy City. He provided material benefits out of his own pocket for students of the Torah in all these countries. He also purchased many books, copies of the Tanakh, as well as of the Mishnah and the Talmud, which are also among the holy writings. Throughout Spain and the countries just mentioned, whoever wished to devote full time to the study of Torah found in him a patron. This is how he was remembered. So we're talking about someone not just immersed in the world of Torah, but who, because of his wealth and influence, is described as making it possible for students at the highest levels and yeshivot from around the Jewish Mediterranean to, to, to do the same thing. Now, should we do a couple of quick poems? We can. I want to just jump in for one second. Sure. Before we do, we should mention his poetry. Uh, first of all, the, in, the, in the, I think it's printed in Masechus Brachas, right? There's a Mavur Talmud, introduction to the Talmud that's attributed to him. Not it's, him. It's attributed. It's, it's actually, it's attributed. Well, it's not really attributed to him. There is another Shmuel the Nagid, who's an Egyptian Jew uh, from a slightly later period. And this is a kind of a, just a historical error that got sort of, it seemed to make sense. So people thought there was only one Shmuel Anagid. 
actually, there were uh, there were Nigidim in in Egypt, and one of them was Shmuel, and he wrote the, that Mavo Hatamud, not not the guy we're talking about. Okay, okay, good clarification. But the one we're talking about, though, just was he? He was the general. He was a soldier. We know that he composed poetry on the battlefield, right? So not only was he the prime minister, he also was a, a fighting Jew, I guess, so to speak. Yeah, there's some some of us aren't quite so sure how much he was fighting. He certainly was responsible for the army of Granada in some way. Whether he actually participated or not is a debate, and I don't think we're ever going to solve it, but it's a debate. Some people take the poetry where he describes the battles at face value, and others say, well, wait just a minute. You know, is that really possible? So we're going to just say we don't know. And it's, it's out there. People can look at it. The battles certainly sound real. Um, he's certainly the only Jew who, um, who wrote about being on the battlefield since, you know, the Tanakh. So I give him that. Um, and it's really quite remarkable. Okay, whether he was or wasn't, exactly. He definitely wrote about it, so it's, you know, and, and some people think that he was, so it's worth mentioning. So, yeah, go ahead, mention some of his uh, his poems, his poetry. So I want to read just one short part of a very long battle poem, because uh, it's got a famous snippet uh, that really captures, um, I guess his chutzpah, we could say. Um, he, uh, this is kind of part of how you present yourself as a communal figure, as a politician, as, a, as an important figure in your world, you do not really shy away from saying, I'm, I'm pretty good, and I have yichus also, and you'll, you'll hear that. So in one of his poems, uh, one of his battle poems, and I'll read it first in Hebrew and then in English, this snippet. Ve'omerli hatuchal at lehalel hashivotiv Ani David Bidori, the Anani, Hashaul Banavim, Anitihu, Yerusha, Mi Mirari, Umeasir, the Elkana, the Asaf, Umishael, the Elzafan, the Sitri, the Echa, Lotihis Shira Sudura, Befi Lael, Asher Gaha Mizori. Um, I meant to say Kale, but I made a mistake, so. If you want to change that, we can. Um, so in, in English by a wonderful poet named Peter Cole, whose work I'll, um, I'll reference later on. Um, uh, someone objected. Who are you to pay homage to God? I am, I answered, the David of my age. He responded, is Saul too among with the prophets? And I told him, the heir of Mirari, Sitri, and Asir, Elkanah, Mishael, Elzafan, Ba'asaf. How could a poem in my mouth be improper to the God who heals my wounds? So what's the Nagid saying here? I am entitled to write Hebrew poetry in praise of God because I am a Levite. He gives these Levitic, his Levitic ancestry. This appears in a bunch of his poems, where he says, I'm, I have yichus in, in our parlance today. And here it is. 
And since my ancestors were responsible for praising God in the Beit HaMikdash, so now I'm responsible for that here uh, because of who I am. And don't tell me I can't do this. Ani David Bidori. Why David Bidori? Uh, he's being chastised for writing poems to God. David is has a political stature. He has a military stature. And he's a poet. So the Nagid is saying, look at me. I am functioning as the David of my generation, as the David of my age. This is really uh, brazen, but it's in keeping with how he presents himself, not always to God. He's always asking for God to help him. Um, but to human beings, Jews, by the way, this poetry is all written in Hebrew. So the audience for the poems is entirely the Jewish world. Um, and uh, Jews did write some Arabic poetry, and they wrote other things in Arabic. But poetry, because poetry is special, they wrote it all in Hebrew. So that's that's the Nagid uh, in in that uh, little snippet. Um, I don't know if we have time for one more short poem of the Nagid. Go Maybe ahead. Not. Sure, go ahead. Okay, one more. This is uh, another side of him. And another side of this poetry, if I can find it. Oh, I, I, I copied it down. Amra smach ba'avur igiacha el ele shanim chamishim ba'olamach v'lo yad'a ki ein chaluka be'enai ben yemotai asher avru uvenot yeme noach asher eshma'a ein li va'olam levad Sha'a aniva, vihi ta'amod karega, the acharkach, the acharken ke'av nas'a. And in this wonderful translation, be glad, she said, that God has given you 50 years in this world. Though she didn't know, there is no division between, as I see it, my days that have passed and Noah's, of which I've heard. In the, in the world, I have nothing but the hour I'm in, which stands for a moment and then, like a cloud, moves on. So this is a very different kind of poem, and it purports to be a quasi-conversation between the poet, the Nagid, and some woman. And she is kind of wishing him, happy birthday, you're 50. She's giving him like a birthday pat on the back. Um, and from the poet's point of view, she doesn't understand. I'm 50. What does that mean in, you know, in the 11th century? It means that the sand in the hourglass is running out. And yes, he's of course, in elsewhere he would thank God for giving him 50 years. In this poem, he's not thanking God. He's very aware of his mortality. And so what he describes at the very end of the poem is living in the moment. I don't care whether I'm 50 or Yemei Noach. How old is Noach? 950. He's saying 950, 50, what's the difference? It's all, that's all gone. All I have is right now. And if you go and look back at the poem, the brilliance artistically of the poem is that it goes from years, two versions of years, Shunotai, Shanim, 
to Yamim, Yamei, uh, Yamotai, and then Sha'a, and then Rega. So the, 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 the units of time in the poem sort of whittle down to that moment where the Nagid is living only in the present. And even that doesn't feel very substantive. It's like a cloud. It, it's there and it, it's going to go away. Brilliant meditation on the brevity of human life um, that in some ways feels very modern. The Nagid is a very complex individual. I hope we'll convey a little snippet of that. Absolutely, absolutely, and and so uh, you mentioned this earlier, just to emphasize. So a lot of these purity, this poetry. So, like you're saying, there are religious ones, kinos, lichas, and then there's just poetry. Non, uh, I think some of them have been published as like shirei chol, right? They're non-religious poetry. Right. I'm ha- I'm have no problem calling them non-religious. Um, we always used to translate. I mean, Israelis speak of it as shirei chol. Um, we used to call that secular poetry. And then we realized for these people, this was not secular. They were celebrating all aspects of human life in the Hebrew language. For them, it had a religious significance, even if the poem itself wasn't on a religious topic. So people like me don't call it secular poetry anymore because that really misrepresents how the poets themselves understood what they were doing. So we call it social poetry, poetry about what it's like to be a human being and a Jew living in the here and now or in a family or in the Jewish community or whatever it is, as opposed to the poems that they wrote praising God that would be recited in the synagogue or we're getting soon to Ibn Gabi Rol, he wrote yet a different kind of piyut. Um, so that's that's how we see it today. And I think this distinction is really important because the, the, the whole idea of this being secular would be absurd to thoroughly halakha <clears throat> observant Jews. Um, they found in the Hebrew language a different part of Jewish experience that they activated. Very valid point. Exactly what you're saying. I just wanted to differentiate that that difference between what you would say as a kinna or as a slicha, as a or a, you know piyat and shul, as opposed to this. That's all. Okay. So you mentioned Shlomo Ibn Gavirol, who we should mention. People may be familiar with his as haros, right? As as harot. Right. That's maybe probably listeners are familiar with, but he was uh, wrote a lot of work, so you can talk about him a little bit. So Ibn Gavirol um, is a very different figure. The second of the four most important greatest poets of Torah Zahav. Um, He wrote voluminous numbers of piyutim, some of them designated for particular points in the synagogue service. So it's very clear there that the intention is uh, for the Shliach Tzibur to recite the poem in the synagogue service. Um, Most of those we would call, or the genre, which is a new genre in uh, Muslim Spain, in, in Piyut. It's called Rishuyot. Um, it's a less obvious genre, and it's always tied. So, for instance, Ibn Gabirol has a bunch of poems. I think maybe we can look at one, um, or may- maybe not from the ones I selected, um, that are supposed to, that are positioned to be introductions to Nishmat Kolchai. 
this was a place, a really important place in, you know, in the daily service uh, where there's a, there's a transition. And so because of how they viewed religious experience, the Jews of this world in this time really wanted to use poetry for Kavanah, to really sort of get your soul, your mind, everything about you oriented to praise God in a proper frame of mind, not to race through the prayers. It wasn't about simple recitation of rabbinic prayer. You got to do it with Kavanah. Um, this is an important principle in Islamic ritual, too. Um, and of course, you know, the Chachamim talk about Kavanah, but then I think everyone's familiar with the experience of prayer where one can race through it. And maybe you have Kavanah, maybe you don't. That's between you and God. You know, I'm not you know, judging anyone. But they were really attuned to the words of prayer, to the significance of prayer, and how it's meant to establish a relationship between both the community, the Keilah, and God, and also the individual and God. And so these Rishuyot are often there to do that, to sort of create a pause. I, I, I was a little surprised. I looked in the art scroll right before Nishmat, and I saw that the art scroll in a note makes a reference to Judah Halevi and Abraham Ibn Ezra writing Rishuyot for Nishmat. And my heart sunk because Ibn Gabirol was the first one to do that. These other guys were copying him. They're great poets. They're great figures in Jewish history and culture. But this was, these Rishuyot, uh, this style of poetry really was invented by Ibn Gabirol. It doesn't exist in the earlier Piyut tradition. It's new. And uh, the other part of what Ibn Gabirol was doing, and I think the reason it's there in Nishmat, um, is the religious experience of the individual. Typically, our standardized uh, tefillah, you know, certainly the Shemona Esrei, it's about the, it's about the kahal, it's about the kilah, it's about Am Yisrael and God. It's not about the individual. Yes, you know, on certain, you know, say Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, we, we, we get a, a different series of notes too. But in the communal experience of prayer, um, the community is forefront. The, in this period in Jewish religious history, the religious significance of the individual is discovered. It's not meant to replace the community of Israel at all, but it's an important uh, complement, let's say. And the poets really, really thought that poetry their poetry could enliven and enrich that individual religious experience. So these poems are not just poems per se, beautiful or not. They're about the religious experience um, connected to the place where it goes. Um, now, Ibn Gabirol was also, uh, you know, a uh, secular poet. If uh, I, I said I wasn't going to say that, but let's say a... Um, a uh, social poet uh, who wrote on not religious themes. So unlike the Nagid, um, he lived a really short and unhappy life. Um, he 
seems never to have married. He developed a disfiguring skin disease as seemingly at a, as a relatively young age. His dates are roughly 1021 to 1058. He lived in Malaga, Zaragoza, which is on the eastern, northeastern part of the peninsula, Granada, and then died in Valencia, which is the southeastern part. Um, he was a Hebrew grammarian. He was a theologian and philosopher. And he was, above all, a, a really, maybe with Halevi, the, the two of the greatest of these four or five greatest Hebrew poets. Um, I mentioned, you know, his religious poetry. We'll look quickly at one example. But he had this other side where he spoke just as a person. Like the Nagid, he, uh, he had an ego. Um, it manifests itself differently. He wrote this really <laughs> kind of remarkable poem. Ani hasar, the hashir li le'eved, ani chinor l'cho sharim v'nognim. Vishiri ka'atara lamalachim umigbaot virashe haskanim. Vihinini vishesh resh notai vilivi van kilev ben hashmonim. Now he doesn't get like Rabbi Eliazar because he wants the, he wants it, he needs the rhyme, nim. So he has to go to shmonim instead of shivim. But it's the same theme of the oddity of someone so very young being perceived as or perceiving himself as so very old. And in this case, um, claiming his brilliance, his his wisdom, you know, all of the things that come with ripe old age, uh, he's like Kevin Shmonim. I'm prince to the poem, my slave. I'm harp to the court musicians. My song is a turban for vizier's heads, a crown for kings in their kingdoms. And here, I've lived just 16 years, and my heart is like 80 within them. Heart could mean mind. Um, this poet, this uh, translation doesn't directly translate the van. My, I, I understand, I perceive, I think, um, but that's okay. Um, one short reshoot. Um, see which one I wanted to do. Um, I love this one. And I'll just say a few words about it afterwards and give a translation. This is a reshoot for Nishmat. And the, so the acrostic is Shlomo. Shechar ticha b'chol shachri v'nishpi ufasarti lecha kapai v'api lecha ha'meh b'lev tzameh he spells out the word Adonai as a word, not as Adoshem. So th this is one of a series of remarkable poems like this. Uh, oh, I should give the English translation first. Let me see if I can grab it quickly. 
I seek you every evening and dawn, my face and palms turned up to you. With a thirsty spirit for you, I moan like a beggar come to my door. The heavens can't contain you, yet my thoughts somehow do. Haven't I hidden your name in my heart until my love for you crossed my lips? Therefore, I'll praise the name of the Lord so long as his breath in me lives. So this is a poem about how the poet composes and why the poet composes, that he's got this feeling of absolute passionate need to praise God that's bursting out of him and it's it's flying out of his mouth, creating this poetry. So strong is his need to um, to to praise God uh, in in both the conventional language of the rabbis, but also in in his own words. And the other thing in the poem that we don't have time to go into in detail is uh, this brilliant notion of where God is to be found. God is in his mind and is in his heart, as well as in the cosmos. It's a kind of a paradox of how they understand the connection of the individual religious being to God. Um, And there are lots of plays on this during this period, because what do people want more than anything else? They want to maintain this connection. Um, They want to establish, enrich this connection. Ibn Gabirol is a genius about this. I think we don't have time to go further, but I do want to mention his Keter Malchut, um, and it still is in some liturgy for Yom Kippur, mostly in Sephardic uh, communities. It, I think it does appear in some um, maybe Southern European Ashkenazi communities today in the United States. I'm, I'm not so sure about that, but it's it's a grand meditation on God's manifestation in the universe. It's just, it's beautifully brilliant. And it ends with a bakasha, which which I think you mentioned is one of the more earlier conventional genres of piyut, where the community is asking something of God, needing something from God. Um, uh, so Keter Mahut and, and the, the poem that concludes it is a wonderful example of this. Um, I would also say, as a reminder, for those of you, or those who are listening who just aren't familiar with any of this, if you look in your machzorim for the Chagim in in all of the Chagim in Tishrei, but also Pesach and Shavuot, if they're you know in all of the machzorim for the Chagim, uh, you're going to find piyutim from all of these figures and others. There are many, many others too. Compared to the Arab, the numbers of Arab poets, much, much fewer, of course, because the Jews are a really small community. But these poets made a profound impact on uh, on our liturgical life uh, in a way that it saddens me there where they come from, what they represented isn't really taught much and it's not fully appreciated. Their words maybe are recited. Maybe they're even recited in shuls passionately. But from someone that studies them and that adores what they accomplished and achieved and um, who finds meaning in their words, uh, it's a terrible tragedy that that who they were and what they represented 
sort of has gotten lost in the transition to, uh, from the medieval period to the modern period. So we can talk about that here for a minute. I mean, we'll get to suggested reading and you're reading translations and Hebrew editions and those that are familiar can, can uh, you know, purchase and look more at and read. But why, why do you think that is? Is some of that because just a lot of Sadur and Machzerim and Shul stop saying some of this? Is it because people don't understand poetry? They're not as, especially American Jews, I guess let's, let's call it, are not as attuned to poetry, to the prose, to the style, to the Hebrew words, to the rhyming. Is that part of the issue, do you think? So you're you're getting me you're forcing me to uh, to come out and say something that is sort of behind some of what I'm trying to uh, convey without blaming anybody. But um, um, what it comes down to from a historical perspective, from from my point of view, is the divergence between Sephardi tradition and Ashkenazi tradition. Now, this is ironic because these people have not been completely eliminated from from Ashkenazi tradition. Uh, A lot of these Piyotim are there. You can find them. Um, And you you mentioned keynote for Tisha Abba'av. And I'm not sure about keynote for Shiva Sarbatamus that we're coming up on. I'm I'm not sure about that, but I'd be surprised if there aren't some somewhere. But certainly for Tisha B'Av. So people are, it's there in in the Sidur. um, And, um, you know, I I can tell you this through an anecdote, a personal anecdote. I was a student and I was in Jerusalem or maybe, yeah, I think I still was a graduate student. And I went to Sforum stores. Since you're, this is Sforum chatter, I went to Sforum stores. I, I wanted, you know, I was looking for editions of some of this stuff. Uh, a lot of it I was able to get in modern editions, but not all of it had been produced in modern editions. And so I went and I would go in and, you know, uh, you know, of course, with a kippah or a baseball hat or whatever, uh, but probably look like an American. And I, I'm talking about, you know, not like last year or 10 years ago. I'm talking about, uh, you know, 1969 or 19, whatever, 70 something. Um, and I would say I would mention the names, uh, you know, Abraham Ibn Ezra. So a kind of look of, you know, worry, panic would come over the face of the, the man in the bookstore, and he would motion me to the back, like I was going back to where they kept the apicorsum. Um, you know, this is completely misunderstood. Um, I, I get why uh, that's how it's viewed. I, I certainly, I, I mean, I studied all of Jewish history, so I, I understand why. And, um, but, um, on the one hand, this man probably knew anybody who you know reads in in the Machzorim knows Abraham Ibn Ezra. You know, I have two huge uh, two huge volumes of his religious poetry, hundreds of piyutim, hundreds. Same with Halevi. Same with Ibn Gabirol. Moses Ibn Ezra. Now we have a brand new edition of he his piyutim, hundreds. So and. Abraham Ibn Ezra, though, also wrote, of course, a really important Torah commentary. So Abraham Ibn Ezra, who I was going to get to last, 
but for purposes of this anecdote. So he's all kinds of things. He's a scientist, he's a commentator, he's a poet, uh, he's a grammarian, he's a polymath. He, he's working on all branches of philosopher, the, theologian, he's working on all branches of, of Judaica as he understands it. And he, he's an Arabist too, even though he wrote everything in Hebrew, he didn't write anything in Arabic and then transmitted that to the Jews of Italy, the Jews of France, the Jews of, of England. And, but because of his outlook on knowledge and God's relationship to the universe, so his emphasis in his um, perushim is on pshat, not uniquely. Uh, he certainly knows you know, rabbinic commentary, but this means that he's a little suspect. And so he's in the back. And whatever he wrote that is in, you know, it's always, you know, you got to go and ask for it. You're not going to, it's, it's not, you know, classical Kabbalah kind of thing where you have to have been, have gone, you have to have mastered halakha and rabbinic mysticism to a certain, and then, then you can go into classical Kabbalah. It's not that it's, it's a different kind of danger for certain people. And this saddens me profoundly um, because of the richness that of, of this period and the individuals who contributed to Jewish life that we still have, at least in the form of their piyutim. Um, that experience of going into that bookstore, that got repeated a lot as I went hunting in Mea Shearima or in other places for other books. And even Judah Levi, Judah Levi, uh, he's, he's inherently more kosher, but for reasons that you know, the people I bought the books from didn't understand, um, mostly because of the Hebrew translation of the Kuzari. But his poetry and everything else about him, and even the Kuzari, which you can't really understand, it was written in Arabic, you can't really understand it unless you know Arabic and currents in Islamic thinking during the period, even Halevi, uh, just doesn't make sense. And what he contributed to Jewish tradition just doesn't make sense without understanding his cultural context. So um, I'm among those who, uh, you know, when I teach this at Cornell, I don't speak as, you know, as a, as a Jew, the way I'm talking on this podcast. I speak, you know, as someone who studied this as part of the humanities. My enthusiasm for it comes through. My love for it comes through. Someone then wants to come to my office and ask me, gee, you get awfully excited when you talk about this. What's what's that all about? You know, I, I will probably at some point tell them um, I'm not trying to hide it, but it's not, you know, what I'm there to do. But when I teach this, you know, in adult Jewish education, in my shul or in other shuls or where I'm, you know, whatever, or in this pot, then I'm going to talk about this dynamic that you're asking about, which is, well, what happened to all these people? Where, where did they go? Well, they didn't go anyplace. And in the classical Sephardi tradition, they're preserved. Um, they're profoundly respected. Now, because of modern Jewish history and the course that modern Israel has taken and that some of the Jewish communities in, in the United States have taken, sadly, from my point of view, um, classical Sephardi culture has somewhat been co-opted by Ashkenazi uh, influence, let's say. I'll, I'll put it as mildly as I can. Now that's, I have no, you know, 
Uh, I'm not involved in that process, nor am I in a position to, you know, to interfere in it. But if we just look at um, what's happened in some of the Sephardi issue vote in the United States, in Brooklyn, and I, I expect in Israel too, or if I look at, you know, some of the, not entirely, but some of the influences on Shas. Yes, they, they would follow the Sephardi chief rabbi, um, but but there, there's been an Ashkenazification um, that that is a function of dynamics in the modern Jewish world, and that I think has contributed to the disappearance uh, of all of it. Not its disappearance, but its sort of being set aside. And when I'm speaking to Jewish communities, I'm interested in aiding in the process of recovery. Um, not to diminish in any way, you know, Ashkenazi tradition, which has its own strengths and its its own contributions to, to the history of the Jews and to Jewish culture. That's a different story. And I talk too long because I'm a professor, you see. So this is part of the operational, uh, it's an operational hazard. It's it, it, very interesting, uh, the point you're making. And I think uh, just to go back to what I was trying to say, the other point is even the piyutim and the kinnis and the slichas and the Rosh Hashanah Kippur thing, and people don't, it, they say it, like you said, in shul, but they don't know it as much. I, I think that has to do with not understanding as much. You have the art scroll, but not understanding as much what it is exactly they're saying or appreciating the poetry, just that aspect. I know you mentioned Ibn Ezra and others, right? Like like Art Scroll, for example, translated a lot of Rishayinim and Chumash. They didn't do Ibn Ezra. I doubt they'll do Ibn Ezra, right? Things oh. like that. <laughs> exactly. Ibn, been Ezra, Ibn Ezra was a halachic Jew. And, uh, you know, so why is it so scary? It's not going to, it's not going to change anybody. It's not going to send someone to become an epichorus. It's going to, particularly in our world today, where we are living in more than one world. Not Maybe not if we're Haredim. So, okay, they're doing their thing. But for all of modern orthodoxy, we're living, you're living in more than one world. So, um, you know, there, there is nothing terrifying about Ibn Ezra or any of these other figures. Um, they have a lot to teach you, a lot to teach us. Uh, and uh, to be proud of, um, and especially if we um, if we embrace, you know, how wonderfully beautiful the Hebrew language is. Um, you know, Rambam makes it one of the mitzvot to study Hebrew to learn Hebrew. Um, he was part of this tradition, although not a poet himself. Hebrew is, you know, a part of Jewish culture. Um, now, if you're living in a totally Talmudic environment, Hebrew shmibru, you know, it's, it, it, it's only, it, it's it's the Gemara, it's Aramaic, you know, okay, Hebrew, I got to learn the Mishnah, but I, I don't really know. But Hebrew is inherently the language of the Jewish people. Uh, and uh, as such, you know, a treasure. So, like I said, we'll we'll get to you know we can go on discussing this, but we'll we'll put that aside. And there's we'll you'll, you know I'll talk at the end suggested reading and where people can learn more about this. But 
We do want to mention a, a f- number of figures. Like you said, the Rambam, is, you know, we won't really discuss much on this podcast because he wasn't, for the context of poetry, a philosopher. Of course he was, and halachist, but we won't mention so much the, the poetry. Mainly we're discussing the poetry. So you mentioned, obviously, Yehuda Levi, the author of the Kuzri, one of the most famous kinos on Tishabov, Tzian Tishali, of course, and many others, but that's very famous. Everybody says that. Um, right. and you he didn't write it. He did not write it to be a kina for Tisha B'Av. He wrote it as a personal poem, uh, as part of a whole corpus of 40 poems he wrote about his, uh, his, we could call it an aliyah with a small a from Spain to Israel. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, just to mention, so you, we, we can discuss here, you mentioned already Ibn Ezra's background, so if you want to mention some of his poetry, you could, but you already mentioned him himself personally, but there's Yehuda Levi, uh, Ibn Ezra, you said Moshe Ibn Ezra, people may not be familiar with, and then you have, I don't I don't know if you will mention maybe Yehuda Lachrizi, and then there's many others that we're not going to get to. So I don't think we're just, going to get to Kharizi and others, but... Yeah, I just want to throw his name out there. One of, one of the books I'm going to recommend will give you the whole... Major minor poets also into Christian Spain and beyond, uh, even into Italy and and southern France. Um, and we could go even further because um, these poets that we're talking about um, were important. How do we have so many of their poems? Well, the religious poems we have because they made it into Sidurim and Machzorim. Most of them. Some of them didn't, but most of them did. Other poems of theirs were kept because they were famous figures like Abraham Ibn Ezra and Yudah Levi. They were famous. Um, the Nagid poetry was not really discovered until the 20th century. And much of the poetry of all of them and a bunch of others was not discovered until the discovery of the Cairo Geniza. Um, I don't know. Is, 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 the, is your listenership or do I need to say something brief about that? You can mention it. I will. I can refer the listeners back to an episode I did uh, generally with Professor Eve Krakowski, and I also had oh, recently. Okay. I recently had also Professor Rebe- uh, Professor Doctor Rebecca Jefferson on her new book about the discovery. So I have right. discussed Karaganiza. Refer right. listeners back to there. Oh, okay. So I don't. They they are more interested in the social aspects of what was found in the Geniza, but what was also found in the Geniza were pages and pages and teared off pages of manuscripts of medieval Hebrew poetry. Why? Because in Egypt and in Yemen and in Eretz Israel and throughout the whole Mediterranean, Jews who could read and write were fascinated by all of these poems and by the figures who wrote these poems. So we have hundreds, thousands of manuscript pages that filled in a lot of the picture of what was going on and uh, enriched us to be able to produce more complete copies of both their social poetry and their religious poetry. So it, it proved to be just incredibly important from a literary perspective and a perspective of the Hebrew language, Hebrew literature, and uh, Jewish history, religious history of the Jews, the Geniza. So. Uh, Moshe Ben Ezra, who I'm going to have to spend the least amount of time with here. Um, you know, in tradition, they most, mo- all of these figures get an R or a Reish in front of their name. 
they really weren't rabbis in the classical sense. They were trained, all trained in Talmudic study, but they 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 didn't write on halacha except for the Nagid of the poets I've mentioned. Now there were others. Moshe ben Ezra studied at the yeshiva in Lucena uh, with uh, Rabbi Yitzchak ibn Chayat, uh, who was the head of the yeshiva in Lucena and who wrote a Talmudic commentary. There were a bunch of people like him, like this Rosh Yeshiva, who trained all of these poets. They, so they 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 knew halacha, but they 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 didn't practice. Uh, they, they weren't poskim, nor did they write, and, and, and they weren't dayanim, nor did they write, you know, Talmudic tree, except the Nagi uh, among the poets, among the ones I've mentioned. But there were others uh, who were primarily halakhic scholars, but because they were Sephardim, they dabbled in writing poetry, usually more religious, but always some secular poetry too. So Moses Eben Ezra uh, who who uh, was born around 1055 in Granada and who died in Christian Spain in 1138, approximately, is known in Jewish tradition as Hasalah uh, because he wrote, because his expertise as a python, as a writer of piyut, was for Slichot. So if you go to any collection of Slichot, you're going to see scores of poems by Moshe Ben Ezra. Um, it was one of the themes that he just sort of embraced as his own. He wrote other, many other religious poems on other topics of, of religious interest, but in particular of, of Slichot. That, and, and people need to look at that. So he wrote one other grand religious poem which is modeled on Keter Malchut. And um, I might be wrong, but I don't think it's printed in any Sidurim. But it, it's B'Shem Kel Asher Amar. It's a, it's a view of cosmology, of God creating the universe and God's majesty in creating the universe in all of its dimensions. And it, it goes on for many, many, many verses. Uh, and it's majestic, and it's a it's a different kind of praise of God than we find normally in the tradition. I'll read one secular poem just to capture some of the beauty of the language which stands out. This is just beauty. Um, technically speaking, it's either a nature poem or a wine poem or a little bit of both. Kotnot pasim lavashagan. Uchsut rikma mide dish o. Umeil tash baits ata holets. Ulachen ulchol ein her afil o. Kotsit hadash lizman hudash. Yatsra sochet likrat bo o. Achlifnehem shoshanavar melech. Ki al huram kis o. Yatsa mi ben mishmara lav. Vaishane et big de hil o. Milo yishte ye no alav. This is entirely a social poem. Let me get that. This is in yet another person's translation. Um, the garden wears a colored coat. The lawn has on embroidered robes. The trees are wearing checkered shifts. Checkered shifts. They show their wonders to every eye. 
and every bud renewed by spring comes smiling forth to greet his Lord. See, before him marches a rose, kingly his throne above them born. Freed of the leaves that had guarded him, no more to wear his prison clothes. Who will refuse to toast him here? Such a man his sin will bear. It's playing with a series of beautiful images in the Hebrew language occasioned by the coming of spring and the appearance of the rose, last of these beautiful flowers in this garden. Um, and it's an occasion to imbibe, not forbidden to the Jews, of course, forbidden to the Muslims, um, but this is part of what we call the idea that if, as long as halakha does not make it forbidden to enjoy all that is beautiful and pleasurable in God's creation is a kind of religious obligation. You praise God by enjoying every, all the natural beauty and all of the possibilities of engaging in beautiful sights, sounds, and smells within the boundaries of halakha. So that, that's what that kind of poem is all about. So that's why it's, we can't call it non-religious. Although there's nothing religious per se about the poem, the background that produces the poem is still in the background of religious poem. Let's go to Halevi now. So Halevi is so famous for writing the Kuzari book, which I'll either inform or remind your readers he wrote in the Arabic language. It became famous throughout the non-Arabic Jewish world through uh, its translation by Ibn Tibbin in Provence. And um, from there, it, it spread as a, as a book of Jewish piety uh, in, in throughout all of the Jewish world. Um, there are a bunch of modern Hebrew translations as well. There's going to be, it's been long delayed, a modern English translation from the Arabic, not from, not from the Hebrew. Uh, and then people who don't have the Arabic will, will be able to appreciate it. it. That will also come with lots of notes, which show Halevi is thinking in Arabic when he's writing this. Yes, he's a totally devout, passionate Jew, but he's thinking in Arabic. And he's read all of these Arab, Arabic works. And he's using Arabic terms to describe Jewish piety. Um, and that's, of course, lost in, in the Ibn Tibbin translation. Um, but be that as it may, it, he has, in addition to his beautiful poems about his pilgrimage to, to Zion, uh, for which he's also very, very famous, and that have been incorporated both into, uh, you know, into keynote, but in other places too, other parts of his literature, uh, of his, um, he, he wrote um, this one, I guess we'll do a couple quickly. He has one poem that's a little bit like um, Ibn Gabirol, not quite as uppity, um oh, 
אל קד שלחתו, ומפיו את המעטוב מגדנותיי. עדי ראי חשבוני לסובר, ועקב זאת שאלוני, למתי? עניתים, איך צורי גלעד לנגדי, ולא אשתה לרפא מחלותיי. ואיכה אם עשה וקד, עדנה, ועוד לא נגעו עד כ"ד שנותיי. saying, listen, stop complaining that I'm singing a poem in praise of wine. I'm only 24, give me a break. He's like a frat boy uh, or uh, a law student uh, who needs, you know, uh, a, uh, after Havdalah, he needs a night out uh, because he's been working so hard. So even Halevi as a young man is sort of with the program, playing around with the themes Hebrew inherited from Arabic, also with the possibilities of the Hebrew language uh, for fun. Um, um, there are lots of poems like that. But let me go on to um, just one. Let's see. People know Um, well, maybe I, maybe I should do it because people will know it, but maybe not really remember the whole thing. The, this is probably one of his most famous, it's, it's a poem on a religious theme, but it's not a piyut. It, it's part of that cluster of 40 poems he wrote while he was plan, thinking about planning in route and then, you know, arriving in, he first arrived in Egypt where he got, where he stalled, I'll, I'll mention that in a few minutes, Libiva Mizrach. Libiva Mizrach, v'nauchi b'tsof, b'sof ma'arav. Ech et ama et asher ochal, ve'ech ye'arav. Echa ashalem nidarai ve'esorai. Ve'od, tzion b'chevel edom v'ani v'chevel arav. Ye'kal ve'enai, azov kol tuv sfarad. כמו יקר בעיניי רעות אפרות דביר נחרב. And in English, very, very famous poem, of course. Um, Give a prose translation My heart is in the east and I'm at the edge of the west. How can I possibly taste what I eat? How could it please me? How can I keep my promise or ever fulfill my vow when Zion is held by Edom and I am bound by Arabia's chains? I'll gladly leave behind me all the pleasures of Spain if only I might see the dust and ruins of your shrine. So this poem was written when he was still in Sfarad. And when Halevi began to think about actually going, He didn't do it immediately. He had a hard time. What did it mean? It meant 
He was either in his 50s or 60s when this happened. So he was aging, conscious of, you know, his life coming, drawing to an end. But he had a family and a community. And he was an important man to his family and his community. And so one of the poems he writes while he's uh, en route when he finally decides to go is a heart-wrenching poem about how desperately he wants to go to Zion, but how heartbroken he is that he's never going to see his two grandchildren again. He's a man who's torn. He's torn between, you know, living fully a fully Jewish life with his family in Sfarad, but his desire to go and to die in the land of Israel, to taste the soil of the land of Israel before he dies, that he has, he, he believes he has, he can establish a mystical connection to God if, if he only goes to, to Yerushalayim. So he's very conscious of everything that he's giving up, and he's torn by that. And it takes him years to make good on his vow. It's not just like, okay, this is part of my religious necessity. I'm doing it now. I know it comes at great cost, but I have to go. How do we know all of this? We know all of this because of the Cairo Geniza, which contained a lot of letters uh, uh, about Halevi's back and forth, his connections in Egypt. And then... Uh, most importantly, what happens to him when he finally arrives in Egypt in Alexandria? Is he able to go immediately to Eretz Israel? No, for a couple of reasons. One, the ship is not ready to sail, and he needs a rest after this long trans-Mediterranean journey. He also can't go right away because people, big, um, you know, machers in the Jewish community in Egypt can't wait to host him for Shabbat and Chag. And we have letters in the Cairo Geniza about important Jews in Alexandria and important Jews in Cairo battling, no, he's coming to me. No, he's coming to me. No, he's coming to me. He has to come to my house for Shabbat. And Halevi is kind of trapped <laughs> incredibly in among the Jews of Egypt who all wanna rub elbows with him and be honored by his presence at their table because of how important he is and because of his pilgrimage, but they're not letting him go. Finally, after months close to Shavuot in 1141 or on Shavuot in 1141, close to Shavuot, he set sail for uh, Eretz Israel, and he dies of natural causes close to Akko um, soon after he lands. Uh, we know this from, from the Geniza. Um, so we have a much deeper picture of why he was going, what detained him, what happened when he actually got there. Uh, it's really quite remarkable. Um, and, you know, Bialik, who uh, was very enamored of, of Halevi and edited a lot of his poems, a lot of people think, just lyrically, he's the greatest of all of the poets. Um, and, and certainly is, is 1A or B, or they're two ones, both Ibn Gabirol and, and Halevi, very, very different. And that's important too, because they, they were really very different individuals with different religious lives, with different social lives. 
And so their poetry reflects this difference, even though their religion, they come from the same religious background, the same cultural background, and they're, they're, they're all Arabic speaking. Let me end with Abraham Ibn Ezra, who I mentioned before, you know, wrote commentaries on, on the Torah and the books of the Tanakh and uh, wrote books on science and on Hebrew grammar, multiple books. He prolific author and a prolific both social poet and uh, religious poet. And this is, this is a good place to end, I think. And this discussion, and maybe, maybe you'll have another comment or two and we can wrap up. Um, now I have to find it. Too many books. Too many books and never enough books. We know the problem. I'm sure many listeners know the problem as well. Absolutely. So this is, um, this isn't a piyut. Um, it is a religious poem, but really unique in a lot of ways. Hayushme elim shirehem ba'ava ba'agavim v'ha'adomim b'milchamot u'nekamot v'ha'yevanim b'chokhmot u'mizimot v'ha'hodiyim b'mshalim v'chidot v'ha'yisraelim b'shirot v'tishpachot la'adoshem tzvaot. Um... I don't think I have to translate that. that the, all of these other peoples have great poetry. They're known for a particular kind of poetry, for battles or literature, you could even say, or for the Arabs love poetry and all that stuff. Um, and the Greeks for wisdom and the Indians for, for maxims and, and the like. Israel alone among all of these peoples and their poetry, what, sets them apart is Tishbachot for God. Um, and of course, Ibn Ezra wrote those, but he also wrote a lot of poems of the other type that we've, we've sampled. Um, so it, it, it's not entirely true what he's writing there, but what, I guess what he's saying is what's, un, what's singularly unique, aside from the language of Hebrew poetry of the Jews is praises of the God of Israel. So really fascinating. I mean, I hope this episode gives the listeners a sampling, somewhat of an understanding, appreciation of the piyot, the Hebrew poetry, like you said, so as you call it, the social poetry, the religious poetry, piyotim, kinas, slichas, and there's obviously much more, many more that we didn't get to. We also only really focused on poetry, not on works of philosophy that we know Yehuda Levi wrote, Ibn Ezra, um, and, and, you know, Yehuda Levi was in Arabic. You mentioned uh, from Ibn Daud and on his Seder Kabbalah, he also read Munah Harama, which is his two new, actually, Hebrew editions recently of that, but that was also written in Arabic as a philosophy philosophical work, Cheves Alvavis, Rachim Bakuda, we didn't discuss, also written a philosophical work written in Arabic. another hour easily on them, but that would, yeah. that would be... Exactly, that's what I'm saying. So this episode is really, you know, in the beginning, maybe I said different word, really dedicated to the poetry, and I hope, you know, people, listeners can appreciate the beauty and all that there is in there. So um, you've been reading from a number of different Hebrew 
and English books. So what suggested reading can you suggest to listeners if the listeners are interested right. in really three things? I'll ask you for three things. And you, you know, uh, primary text in Hebrew and in English. And also, are there any historical books, any, you know, from contemporary scholars that have written about this that people can read? Right. There are, and the ones I'm going to mention, at least for the translations, are easily accessible in paperback and probably from local libraries. And if they aren't in synagogue libraries, that's a Shonda. They, these books should be in synagogue libraries for people to, to look at. So one is by uh, a poet uh, named Peter Cole, who lives in Jerusalem, um, and he, he, what he did was he wrote a beautiful book that gives a lot of the history and gives some of the literary discussion and biographies of the poets. Um, and it's called The Dream of the Poem. And it's published by Princeton University Press. And it's written, I mean, a, a scholar would enjoy it, but it's written for anybody who reads books. And there's so many poets in this book that also go into Christian Spain that it would give you a really full picture of both religious poetry, but also social poetry over from 950 to 1492. That's the subtitle. Hebrew Poetry from Muslim and Christian Spain, 950 to 1492, published by Princeton University Press. That would be the first book I would go to because it's so rich in not just the poetry, but also in what I think you need to know in order to understand what's going on with this poetry. Then there are two smaller volumes uh, published by the Jewish Publication Society with the Hebrew. Uh, uh, Peter Coles uh, does not have the Hebrew text, but I'm, I, I'm almost positive that he has a link in there through yeah, through uh, Princeton University Press to the Hebrew originals. And so that's because the Hebrew originals, you can't really buy in the States. You'd have, you'd have to buy them in Israel. Um, but the other two volumes that I'm going to recommend of translations are more literary, a little bit less um, uh, historical. Um, they're both by Raymond Shinlin, S-C-H-E-I-N-D-L-I-N. And the first one is just on social. It's called Wine, Women, and Death. Again, Jewish Publication Society, paperback, easily purchased. Again, should be in every uh, public library, uh, should be in every synagogue library. And then his companion volume on just religious poetry called The Gazelle, same author, Medieval Hebrew Poems on God, Israel, and the Soul, Raymond Shinlin. Um, those three, I think, are the best introductions with apparatus. And they would all mention Ibn Pakuda and Halevi's philosophy and Ibn Gabirol's philosophy. You know, Ibn Gabirol wrote philosophical works too, just in Arabic. Um, they were lost. Uh, we have a Latin translation of one um, and uh, an Arabic edition of the other with a very old English translation. So they're not generally accessible. But 
I'm glad you mentioned these others that I don't have time to talk about philosophically, theologically, because it's part of the same world. And um, all of these characters either were philosophers or they dabbled in philosophy. When I say were philosophers, it means they wrote books that dealt with theology or philosophy. They all read it, even if they didn't write it. So there's no separation. This idea, this is the modern world in which we live, where, okay, you're a philosopher or you're a scientist or you're, you're, you're a poet. You're not, you're, you're, you're one thing. Forget it. In the Middle Ages, if you had the seichel and the training and the opportunity, you didn't say, oh, I, I don't do that. You would get an education in all of it. Your abilities might be stronger in one area than another. But, you know, I mean, j- just take a look at Rambam. So Rambam is the greatest halachic authority. He's also a philosopher. Um, he's also a physician. He's also the head of his community. He's also the head of household. He's also a scientist who writes books on medicinals, on pharmaceuticals. Now, everybody knows Rambam is, is a unique figure, but he's not, and he, and he is for sure, but he's not unique in the sense of he mastered more than one thing. Already mentioned Avraham Ibn Ezra, who, who did a lot of things all at once. And Ibn Gabirol is a philosopher and a Hebrew grammarian and a poet. And Halevi is a thinker, a theologian, a communal leader, uh, and a poet. Uh, also totally trained in Judaica and halakha and so on. So, um, and this is true of all of them. They're polymaths. They're not like us moderns. And Very humbling. And that's this culture, and that's hopefully what we're bringing up, besides for the beauty of the poetry. So is there any other, but if finally, is there any other books, just historical overviews, or would get it from these books? Is there any of your books, anything other suggested books that you would recommend? Yeah, my books are, are a little too esoteric, so I'm not going to recommend them. Um, But if anyone is interested in your books, you know, they can put them onto Amazon and look on, you know, anywhere, put in yeah. your name and come up with, you have a number of books, edited books, a number of books you, you just published. Like I said, the, the, one of them is brand new. Uh, so relatively speaking. So. Yeah. Um, I think my best recommendation is the, the three books I mentioned have great bibliographies. And if you say, say you really, wow, I really want to know about more about Ibn Gabirol. You know, you got the bibliography there. There is another paperback. Um, I guess I can mention it on of uh, Ibn Gabirol that includes some of his philosophy. It's by Raphael Loewy, L-O-E-W-E. It's just called Ibn Gabirol. Um, the translation, since it does have Hebrew uh, in addition to English, it will have you know, religious and social poetry and philosophy. We'll talk a bit more about his philosophy. Um, There is um, a wonderful translation in English from the Arabic of Ibn Pakuda, Chovot HaLevavot in Hebrew. Uh, In Arabic, the Arabic original is Hidaya Ilafara Il Kulub, but there's an English translation by... um, 
by <laughs> oh yeah Menachem Mansur um, and that's published by it was originally published by the Jewish Publication Society then by the Lipman Library of Jewish Civilization okay actually if you go to either of those you know big publishing platforms they do have more more than you might expect. Like you mentioned, Sefer Kabbalah has a good English translation. It's been republished. Um, so there is stuff out there, and there's more translation coming out all of the time because we want people to know about this heritage. And anyone that wants the Hebrew originals, I think they're most like you said, they're in they're in Israel. You can't get them here. You have to go there. It's really hard, but the the standard um, four volume edition of all of these poets from Muslim and Christian Spain is Chaim Shirman, um, Hashira Ha'ivrit, Bisfarad, Uvi Provence. Okay. So the last question four that I have five. for you. Okay. For, now, the last question I have for you is just for you personally, not about this, any future projects, what are you working on now? Uh, any books that you're working on? I'm glad you asked that. Um, because I am writing a more popular book now, um, and um, it um, it's supposed to go to the publisher by the end of this year. It's called it, it's in a series of paperbacks, very short paperbacks, called "Very Short Introductions," published by Oxford University Press. I think the price used to be ten ninety five. They might have raised it a, a buck or two. But it's an introduction to Rambam. Um, it's called Maimonides, a very short introduction. It's, an, it's a grounded in scholarship, but presenting Maimonides as a figure in an introduction to all aspects of him for a general audience, but for a Jewish audience too that maybe only knows about him as a master of halakha and maybe knows he was also a philosopher and has been told, don't go there kind of thing. So this is a little book. It's uh, be 125 pages, an introduction to Maimonides. Um, I'm very excited about doing this for a more general audience. And uh, two chapters talk about the cultural background, what we've been discussing tonight, including the philosophy, but also the halakhic background, because Maimonides... The master of halakha is, he mentions his father uh, as his first teacher of halakha, but also Al-Fasi and Ibn Migash, his father's predecessors. Um, so he, he sees himself as, as part of that uh, aspect of Sephardi Jewish culture um, as the next link in that chain. But also, you know, uh, I, I don't think you can study Rambam without, you know, the whole cultural background, unless you're just interested in his halakhic rulings, which case then you don't need all the rest. Okay, very interesting. Um, and thank you very much for discussing this uh, wide ranging, fascinating discussion. And hopefully the listeners enjoyed and got to know a little bit more about this cultural context and, and poetry, Hebrew poetry. So thank you very much for joining me. Pleasure. Thank you very much.